Starting in 2018, the United States adopted a new military doctrine announcing that major power confrontation with China would be its dominant focus. Today, we examine China's foreign policy and its evolution since the 1949 revolution brought the Communist Party of China to power. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're joined by Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He is a founding director of the Confucius Institute at the New Mexico State University. He is also an organizer and activist with the peace organization, Pivot to Peace. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here, Brian. Ken, in our conversation with you a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what to expect with the new Biden administration. Obviously, since 2018, the U.S. military policy has been reoriented. Its foreign policy reoriented the so-called Asia pivot that President Obama announced in Australia 10 years ago. 2011 has manifested itself, evolved or shown itself to be basically a policy of confrontation. An Asia pivot might have meant many different things, but apparently what it means is preparing for World War III with China. And we talked about what U.S. foreign policy is all about regarding China, what drives it. We talked a little bit about how the Chinese are viewing U.S. foreign policy. Today, though, we want to talk about China's foreign policy. And China's foreign policy, meaning the policy of the People's Republic of China since the Communist Party of China took power after a 27-year-long civil war. They took power in September, October 1949. Of course, October 1st, 1949 is the official day. Uh, That's when Mao Zedong, the chairman of the Communist Party, stood before a massive throng of people at Tiananmen Square and announced the Chinese people have stood up. China has stood up. And that began the start of the socialist project in China. Now, that was 1949. If you look at the various stages of China's foreign policy, we can trace it or identify it or label it by sort of looking at decades or stages. There is the period 1949 to 1959, that was the time in which China was a close ally of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the Soviet Union. That was the period of the Sino-Soviet alliance. Then the next phase in China's foreign policy is determined in large measure by the split between the political division between the Soviet Union and China. That would be, say, the period between 1959 and the visit to China by Richard Nixon after Henry Kissinger, who was his national security advisor, 
had gone there for secret negotiations the year before in 1971. Then there's the period of the 1970s, culminating in the formal normalization of relations between the United States and China, 1972, and culminating in the normalization announcement in 1979. And then there's the several decades afterwards. We're going to march through this history and examine the different stages of China's foreign policy and understand why it changed, what caused it to change, what was China thinking during these different stages, what were its priorities, what were its main challenges. Again, we are socialists. This is the socialist program. We want to come at history and historical developments with a partisan point of view. That's what we do. Uh, We are socialists. We are also very sympathetic to the Chinese revolution and all of its strides. But we also want to examine this history with an objective faculty. In other words, to look at history, not through a purely ideological lens, certainly not with rose-colored glasses on, but to be able to really understand what was driving not only China, but driving the United States. What were the considerations of the Soviet Union? the other major players in the world. And we have to have a well-rounded whole view of the world situation in order to understand what was making China do what China was doing, what led to its thinking in its different stages. And we want, because you are a scholar, you are an expert on Chinese history, we want to be able to continue this discussion with you and we look forward to it. But let's just start at the beginning. And of course, the beginning isn't really the beginning, but let's start with the victory of the Chinese Revolution. Mao and the Communist Party take power. Their main enemy, the nationalists, the Kuomintang, led by Chiang Kai-shek, have fled. They're defeated. They take the island of Taiwan. Part of the agenda of the Chinese is to get that island back under full control. At that time, Mao Zedong goes to Moscow and meets with Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, and China and the Soviet Union forge an alliance. And that has the impact on shaking up the world in a way that was sort of unforeseeable 10 years earlier, certainly, and certainly led to what we now know in popular vernacular as the Cold War. But let's just talk about the significance of China's revolution and then the reorientation of its foreign policy directly and towards the Soviet Union. Sure. It's interesting. The trip to Moscow that Mao Zedong makes in winter of 1949 to 50 is the only time he ever traveled outside of China. So signaling certainly just how important and how fundamental the alliance with the Soviet Union was going to be. The Treaty of Friendship that's signed between the Soviet Union and the New People's Republic of China is the foundation, creates the foundation that allows China to begin its policies, pursue its policies of building socialism through the decade of the 1950s. The Soviets, under the terms of the Treaty of Friendship, extended significant assistance to China. They granted China loans, made some outright grants. They provided equipment and technical assistance including lots of 
Soviet advisors who came and lived in China and worked alongside Chinese comrades in getting industrialization going in a lot of infrastructure projects, in establishing scientific and technological research institutes. It was a period of very serious and very real and substantial cooperation between the Soviets and the Chinese. It was not a period that was completely free of tensions or of differing perspectives. And indeed, a lot of political developments that follow within China in the later years of this period and on in the following decade or two stem from some deep disagreements, different perspectives on how China should be pursuing its process of economic development. But nonetheless, for that first decade from 49 to 59, uh, the alliance with the Soviet Union was critical for establishing the foundations of socialism and socialist development in China. There are conversations that take place between Stalin and Mao Zedong. And one of the things that's noteworthy, and some of these conversations are now available to the public, the USC, U.S. China Institute has a vast archive. I'm sure you've been there, USC, University of Southern California. And, you know, one of the conversations takes place, and it's December 16th, 1949. So the revolution happens. Mao is the leader of the new China. He speaks to the people October 1st, 1949. And for the first and only time, he leaves China and he goes to Moscow. And he's there for quite a while. He's there. I mean, how long do you remember? He's there about six months. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, you've just had a revolution and you're there. So you might think, well, conversation between Stalin and Mao must have been complicated, no? <laughs> I'm sure it was. They didn't actually meet face to face very often. They did a few on a few occasions. But basically, Mao was there to preside over and guide the negotiating team, the Chinese diplomatic team that was there to work out really the nuts and bolts of how these programs of assistance and cooperation would function. The treaty wasn't just a sort of general statement of principles. That would have been easy enough. But they really wanted to have a very concrete document that would structure the relationship and ensure you know, that it was, on the one hand, an expression of a fraternal relationship, but also one which was going to be beneficial to both parties. I mean, the Soviet Union was extending assistance to China as an act of solidarity, but also was you know, deeply involved at that time in rebuilding its own economy and recuperating from the devastations of the Second World War, the great anti-fascist war. They were interested in a relationship which would be mutually beneficial. So it's not just Mao, it's a whole team who's there, and they're talking about the nuts and bolts of how Soviet aid can benefit China they're also talking about complicated issues relating to disputed territories, Port Arthur, of course, at the treaties and the agreements between the Soviet Union and their wartime allies, the U.S. and Britain, about how to deal with the post-war issues related to disputed territories, especially territories that had been taken by Japan and belonged previously to Russia. I mean, those were part of the discussions too, correct? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a, it's a whole effort to kind of restructure geopolitical relations across Eurasia. Uh, you know, the, the treaty is a treaty between the Soviet Union and China, but the fraternal governments in Eastern Europe were also, you know, drawn into this relationship as well. And economic and technical assistance came into China, not just from the Soviet Union, but from East Germany, from Poland, Hungary, other East Bloc countries as well. So the concept really was, at least in part, to build a socialist bloc, which would involve cooperation between a number of different states with the relationship between the Soviet Union and China as kind of the core structure of that. That's so important to keep in mind, especially for people who are just learning about some of these issues. Before World War II, the Soviet Union was the only socialist country. It was invaded by Nazi Germany. The Soviets had to fight 80% of the German military, the Nazi military. They defeated the Nazi military. They were the ones that were responsible really for the liberation of Eastern and Central Europe and really for breaking the back of Nazism. The Soviets had that alliance with Britain and the United States and a relationship between countries that had antagonistic social systems. I mean, up until that point, the U.S. had always hoped for the overthrow of the Soviet Union. Well, it never stopped hoping for it, <laughs> but they were actively working towards it. And same with Britain. And Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Britain, like a fierce anti-Soviet, anti-communist hawk inside the British establishment, suddenly they were partners because they had a common foe, German imperialism, Nazism, and of course, later, the Soviets also declared war on Japan towards the end of the war in August 1945. But as the war comes to an end, revolutions start to break out. A revolution in Vietnam, a revolution in Korea. Korea and Vietnam are both divided between North and South sectors, partly as arrangements between the victorious allies, Britain and the United States on the one hand and the Soviet Union on the other. And then the Chinese Revolution in 1949 becomes victorious, and now you have a huge part of the world living in socialist countries. So as you mentioned, there's now a socialist bloc. Before that, the Soviet Union was isolated, became a point of controversy and debate within the Soviet Communist Party of whether that was the natural way of things. Socialism in one country as a concept or a theory became a debate between Stalin and Trotsky and others. Those were ideological political debates. Well, however one views those debates, by 1949, it's no longer socialism in one country because now there's going to be socialism in not just another country or a few other countries, but the biggest country in the world, China. And thus, the relationship of forces between socialism and capitalism or imperialism go through this decisive alteration. And suddenly, socialism isn't simply an idea or a movement. It has state power in a big part of the world. 
Yeah, I think that's the context in which we see the Cold War really take shape, that suddenly the prospect of revolution, not just in Eastern Europe, not just in China, Korea, Vietnam, but the idea that there might be a real global surge of revolutionary upheavals, that comes to be the single focus for American foreign policymakers, for American elite politicians, in those years immediately after the Second World War. The divisions in Europe, especially the division of Germany, the division of the city of Berlin, sets up these direct sort of face-to-face confrontations between the erstwhile allies, who now once again, having sort of cleared fascism from the political stage, now they find themselves once again in confrontation, in direct confrontation. And under President Truman, the ideas of the Cold War, the doctrines of the Cold War become the primary shaping factor in American policy calculations. And you can see that so clearly, so very clearly in the difference between the way that American foreign policy operates towards the nationalist independence movement in the Dutch East Indies and the independence movement under the leadership of the socialist movement in Indochina. The Americans put pressure on the Dutch to allow Indonesia to become an independent country, which it did in January of 1949, just a few years after the end of the war. Whereas in Indochina, as we know all too well, the Americans first supported the French in fighting against the Viet Minh, And then when the French had had enough and decided to step away, the Americans stepped in to replace them as a neo-colonial power and fought the war on there for another 20 years after that. And the sole basis of that distinction was that American policymakers looked at Sukarno and Hatta in Indonesia and said, well, these guys are just nationalists. That's okay. But in Vietnam, in Indochina, they looked and they saw Ho Chi Minh and they said, oh, this guy's a communist. So that's got to be bad, and we have to stop that at all costs. So the Cold War really became the determining factor in American foreign policy in ways that, you know, obviously were designed to try to promote and preserve American dominance and hegemony, but which didn't necessarily relate to the actual needs and aspirations of people in various countries around the world. When you think about it, Ken, if you roll the video forward by... 25 years and the split starts to happen between the Soviet Union and China or really splits apart and the United States forges a de facto alliance with China, it makes you kind of go back and think about what the other variant possibilities would have been for U.S. imperialism and for the imperialists generally if they had not had such an ideologically restricted view of this global class war that then becomes known as the Cold War. And by that, I mean, there were people in the U.S. State Department who had connections to Mao Zedong, who had connections to the Chinese Revolution, people like Owen Lattimore, for instance, who said, look, yes, the Chinese communists are communists and the Soviets are communists, but They're Chinese, and they can be looked at distinctively and differently. And in fact, we could forge an independent relationship with them because the main goal of the Chinese communists is to develop China, to become unified, to become free, to become equal. And just as there were advocates in the U.S. establishment, the imperialist establishment, who thought it was a mistake 
to treat Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam as just an erstwhile enemy because he too was a communist. And, you know, they made the argument that, wait, we don't have to think of all of the communist-led governments in the same way. We can break them apart, actually. We can have friendly relations with some while targeting sort of the main problem, which was the Soviet Union, because it was the biggest, the largest, the most resourced of the socialist bloc countries and the first one. And those people were driven out of the State Department. Owen Lattimore and, and the others, they were accused of having lost China, of having been soft on communism, and the Cold War mentality just drove them out. So the U.S. imperialist establishment developed a singular approach towards containment of communism and the overthrow of communism. And that also translated into the war against socialism and communism here in the United States, where this kind of ferocious, united anti-communism destroyed what was up until then a robust left inside the United States. It was the dominant ideological strain, and it sort of put outside the acceptable level of conversation any other tactical or political approach by imperialism to deal with the threat of rising communism. Absolutely. I think that the ideological blinders that American policymakers wore in those days, not that they've completely abandoned those ever, but certainly at the height of that, the McCarthy period in the early 1950s, that was the domestic expression of this worldview. And of course, on one level, they were absolutely right in understanding that there's a fundamental contradiction between the socialist perspective, the socialist model of economic development based on serving the interests of working people and the capitalist system that is based on extracting value from the labor of the masses. You know, there is a fundamental contradiction there. So on one level, they weren't wrong about that. But in terms of the sort of practical political relationships between states, the idea of an international order, a system of international law, a system of respect for the sovereignty and integrity of nation states and all that, the conduct of American foreign policy was totally subordinated to these ideological and political economic objectives of American imperialism. Yeah, and if anybody went against the grain even if they were pro-capitalist, even if they were advisors for imperialism, but they went against the grain, they were brought down. I mean, similarly, you know, what we see today, and I don't want to jump ahead, but to this kind of groupthink consensus position where China must be viewed now as the absolute enemy that America has to get ready for World War III, that major power confrontation and conflict are the order of the day. This is all part of that groupthink. But Anyway, think about that as we do this march through history. I want to go back, though, to the initial conversation between Mao Zedong and Stalin, or conversations. And again, I mentioned the University of Southern California, the U.S.-China Institute has archives and many of these documents that weren't available to us way back when, but are now. Here's a conversation, December 16, 1949, Mao. He says to Stalin, the most important question at the present time is the question of establishing peace. China needs a period of three to five years of peace, which would be used to bring the economy back to pre-war levels and to stabilize the country in general. Decisions on the most important questions in China hinge on the prospects for a peaceful future. With this in mind, the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China 
entrusted me to ascertain from you, Comrade Stalin, in what way and for how long will international peace be preserved? To which Comrade Stalin responds, quote, in China, a war for peace, as it were, is taking place. The question of peace greatly preoccupies the Soviet Union as well, although we already have had peace for the past four years. Again, this is 1949, World War II ended in 1945. With regards to China, there is no immediate threat at the present time. Japan is yet to stand up on its feet and is thus not ready for war. America, though it screams war, is actually afraid of war more than anything. Europe is afraid of war. In essence, there is no one to fight with China, not unless Kim Il-sung decides to invade China. Now, that's Stalin making a joke, of course. Kim Il-sung was the leader of North Korea who was an ally of China. Again, it's interesting, Ken, and the reason I thought it was significant is this was December 16th, 1949. Six months later, China is at war, and it's at war in Korea, not because Kim Il-sung has invaded China, but because the division of Korea, just like the division of Vietnam as part of these post-World War II arrangements, was essentially untenable. The United States had kept the Japanese colonial apparatus in place after the surrender of Japan in August 1945, the unconditional surrender to the United States following the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the Americans told the Japanese, don't leave Korea. Don't leave Korea till we get there because they didn't want Korea to be free from an imperialist force for any amount of time because they were fearful that the revolutions that were taking place in Korea, like the ones in Vietnam, like the ones in China, would actually fill the vacuum and take the power. So the Japanese military defeated stays in place as the colonial overlord of Korea until MacArthur arrives in September 1945, and then the Korean peninsula is divided. There's a Soviet sphere of influence, an American sphere of influence, and there's an agreement between the two that both countries will have their armies, their militaries, leave all of Korea by 1948. And in fact, both sides do leave Korea by 1948. So the big power impact or imposition on the Korean Peninsula is removed in 48, and immediately the social conflict over what Korea will be going forward. Will it be a vassal state led by U.S. imperialism using those who would function as Japanese puppets, they were the rulers of South Korea, or would it be the communists led by Kim Il-sung and the Korean Workers' Party who represented the workers and peasants of Korea? So it was a social struggle that led in June 1952, the outbreak of what we now call the Korean War. And within days, the United States organized 26 countries through the United Nations. They invaded Korea. They meant to destroy North Korea. And on the other side of that battle was the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, led by Kim Il-sung. But they had the support of China. They had the support of the Soviet Union. So you could see that the next major war after World War II 
had now become, in a way, a war between socialism and capitalism. So the Cold War suddenly became very hot. Millions of Koreans died. And it set the stage for the whole next chapter in global politics. And it also began what we now know in the United States as the military-industrial complex, because up until then, after World War II, the U.S. military demobilized as it had done after earlier wars, but now there was no demobilization. Now this fight against communism becomes the pretext for the creation of a permanent military machine. And that enters into all of the calculations for China, for the Soviet Union, for Vietnam, for Korea, for any country that wanted to be independent and free. So it's just a remarkable, when you think about this history and what Mao told Stalin he wanted in 1949, just three to five years of peace, and Stalin says, nobody's ready for war. But the social conflict in Korea unresolved, the class war in Korea bursts out and all the major players in the world have to take sides. Really a phenomenal moment in world history. Well, you know, Mao's emphasis on the need for peace was really at the heart of Chinese political calculations at this point. Even after the conflict on the Korean Peninsula had broken out in the summer of 1950, China sent diplomatic signals via their embassy in India, via the embassy in New Delhi, to the Americans saying, please don't intervene. Please don't get involved in this. You know, let's let the situation on the peninsula resolve itself because we don't want to be drawn into a conflict. What we need is, you know, peace and stability to go about our business. Obviously, the United States didn't uh, respond to that. And in the end, by November of 1950, China sent the Chinese People's Volunteers, 600,000 troops into Korea to help to defend the Korean people from the American forces. And that, of course, led to the stabilization of the peninsula being divided the way it has remained ever since then. But, you know, the idea that somehow the Chinese were behind the outbreak of the Korean War is absolutely not in keeping with what China's real interests and stated positions were at the time. They didn't want intervention. They didn't want to go to war. What they wanted and needed, as Chairman Mao had said to Stalin, was for a period of peace and stability so that they could undertake the tasks of trying to recover cover their economy and, you know, start the process of building socialism. And that's what the Soviets wanted. I mean, you could see, even though Stalin was maybe in that private conversation a bit cavalier about the global situation, the Soviets weren't, in fact, cavalier about the designs of American imperialism. I mean, the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki showed the Soviets that the U.S. had a weapon that they did not possess, that the U.S. had a monopoly on nuclear weapons. And the entire ferocious anti-communist consensus within the establishment, the imperialist establishment inside the U.S. military, too, was that war with the Soviet Union was more or less inevitable. I mean, we know this from Daniel Ellsberg's book during the time that he was in the Rand Corporation and was part of the nuclear war establishment. They were preparing for nuclear war. And the Soviets were trying to do everything in their power to not poke the bear in a way. In other words, to have peace. In fact, if Stalin had his druthers right after World War II, he would have wanted exactly what Mao wanted in 1949, was a long period where there was no war because 27 million Soviet citizens had died. 
the Soviet Union became a global power, but the suffering of the Soviet people and the dislocation and the harm done to the Soviet economy was almost unimaginable. And yet conflict was coming. I mean, again, these are Soviet or Stalin's calculations in the context of looking for peace. I mean, right after the end of World War II in 1945, when there was dual power inside of China, there was Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist armies, and they were the formally recognized government of China. But then there was tens of millions of people in the countryside fighting with Mao and fighting for the revolution under the leadership of the Communist Party. The Soviets had a very moderate position. They said, don't try to seize power. You should have negotiations. There should be a coalition government with Chiang Kai-shek. And Stalin and the Soviet Union actually recognized Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang as the legitimate representative of the Chinese people. Again, that's not an adventurous policy. That's a very moderate policy. I'm wondering how the Chinese, meaning how would Mao and Zhou Enlai and the other leaders of the communist movement, how did they interpret the Soviet policy during those first years when, again, peace was the priority for the Soviet Union and Stalin feared that any revolution anywhere you know, the Soviets would be held responsible if the communists took power somewhere else. Well, I think that when we think about this decade in the 1950s, the real close period of the Sino-Soviet alliance, we have to understand that right from the start, it was a complicated relationship. There were terrific benefits that flowed to China from this alliance, and certainly the goal of peace, of having some time for stability and recovery and social construction, that perspective was shared on both sides. But right from the start, there were some divergences in the relationship as well. In part, as you just mentioned, Stalin and Soviet policy had been moderate, to say the least, in terms of the political situation within China and support for Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists had persisted all the way down into 1948. Uh, Of course, the Soviet Union immediately recognizes the revolutionary government as soon as it comes into control and as soon as the PRC is being established. But there were differences of perspective, differences of opinion, and the Chinese leadership, not just Chairman Mao, but I think quite broadly amongst the Chinese leadership, there was a concern that they didn't want to simply be kind of the junior partner. They didn't want to be assumed you know, to be a subordinate component of a socialist bloc, which was really just going to be an extension of sort of Soviet foreign policy interests. The Chinese get involved very early in the 1950s in what emerges as the non-aligned movement. They take part in the great Bandung conference down in Indonesia in 1955, where they position themselves as part of the sort of newly emerging post-colonial states in Africa and Latin America, or at least the Caribbean and India and places like that, to try to chart a path that goes aside from, sort of leaves aside this great power confrontation of the Cold War. Certainly, the Chinese saw themselves as closely allied and fraternal with the Soviet Union, but they didn't want to just be subordinate, sort of be subsumed under this rivalry between the Soviets and the United States. And that kind of activity, I think, was really critical for them in establishing their position 
their foreign policy orientation in general. Zhou Enlai, who served both as prime minister and foreign minister, articulated fundamental principles for China that centered around the idea of respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states, non-intervention in the internal affairs of other states. Obviously, they wanted those policies to be applied to China. They wanted other states to respect China's sovereignty, its territorial integrity, its right to self-determination, its ability to choose its own path, its own government. But they were clear that they would in turn respect that in other countries. Obviously, that was a refutation of American interventionism, of imperialist efforts to continue to control other countries, either overtly through colonialism or through less overt neo-colonialist mechanisms. But those principles were established by the Chinese right from the start. And I think their effort to work with the non-aligned movement meant that they wanted to be taken seriously and respected in their own right, as well as being a component, a part of the larger socialist bloc. That would seem to be fundamental and fundamentally important for us, people who want to understand the evolution of China's foreign policy, that the Communist Party of China, Mao, and those who came after him, they're communists. They believe in communist ideas. They're Marxists. At the same time, they're leaders of a state, and the state lives among, as Lenin put it, a system of states. And so one cannot simply look at the world as a forum for revolution. You have to have diplomatic relationships, even with governments that are your enemies in many ways, or governments that persecute communists in their own country. When you think about the Bandung Conference, of course, some of those independent bourgeois nationalist and anti-imperialist governments say, uh, I'm thinking of Nasser in particular in Egypt, who helped reshape the Middle East and the Arab world and pan-Arabism. At the same time, they were jailing the Communist Party of Egypt. Similarly, and this happened even you know well before the time period we're talking about, even say back in 1920, when the Soviet Union, then really led by Lenin, forged an alliance with the government of Turkey, which had a contradiction with British imperialism, as did the newly formed socialist government in the Soviet Union. But the Turkish government was executing the Communist Party founders of Turkey. And yet the Soviet-led, the communist-led government of the Soviet Union chose to maintain and even deepen the relationship between the Soviet Union and bourgeois-led Turkey because they had a common foe, British imperialism. These kind of arrangements, well, you can't really avoid them when you're living within a system of states. And then there's the third element that you're referring us to, which is how the Chinese view themselves having overcome a century of humiliation by Western powers, foreign powers. If a sister socialist country that's strong acts in a way that appears to be insensitive or chauvinistic, they're not going to say, oh, that's fine. You're communist, so we don't mind. The sensitivities or sensibilities of a people who have suffered so much national oppression has to be also very much a part of political calculations. Absolutely. I think that for the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China in the 1950s and going on from there, their mission, their goal that they were very clear on and very upfront about was to build a better future for the Chinese people. Chairman Mao and other Chinese leaders 
talked all the time about what they called building a new China. The emphasis was on you know, a new age, a new era in Chinese history where the needs of the people, the needs of the working people, whether in the agricultural sector or in the building of a modern industrial economy, were going to be taken as the foundation, were going to be taken as the basis of what the state was all about, and that that process would be guided by the leadership of the party. And that's not the same as sort of nationalist expansionism or something like that, but it's a desire to fulfill the needs and interests of the Chinese people. And so when we look at the course of development in the 1950s, this is where the tensions with the Soviet Union really, really come to a head. They emerge around these issues of how should China go about the process of developing its economy? How should China go about the course of building socialism? And Chairman Mao and others within China, while certainly respecting the achievements of the Soviet Union and the advances that had been made there, felt that they wanted to pursue a developmental path, which was distinct from that of the Soviets, and pursued, for example, the policies of agricultural collectivization in ways that worked very, very differently from the experience of the Soviet Union. They had different ideas about the organization of industrial management in the new factories that were being built, the role of workers in management, as opposed to a sort of expert level management from above kind of model that seemed more characteristic of the Soviet experience. Mao and others you know, developed uh, extensive critiques of Soviet economics, of sort of the political economy of the Soviet Union, not in an anti-communist way way, not in a way that was opposed to the Soviet Union, but trying to learn lessons from their experience, which would make the process of socialist construction in China more effective, more efficient, more beneficial, without some of the contradictions and drawbacks that had occurred. But the Soviet leadership took a view of some of the policies, some of the practices that were emerging in China. They understood that they were diverging from Soviet practice, and they saw that as moving in the wrong direction. They tended to see some of the efforts at mass mobilization, at efforts like the development of the people's communes in the late 1950s, as adventurism, as trying to go too fast, as trying to do too much too quickly. And that difference of opinion led to the rupture between the two parties and the two states that comes out into the open, really, in 1959, and then deepens and broadens through the polemical exchanges of the early 1960s. You know, and again, the relationship that China has, the posture that China has towards the wider world is shaped both by the development of their socialist revolution and their engagement in their perspective on the prospects for socialism in the world, but also through a desire to preserve and protect their own sovereignty and territorial integrity and the system that they wanted to develop in what they saw as the best path forward for the Chinese people. Can the relationship between China and the Soviet Union filled with support and solidarity and also contradictions, as you mentioned, and vital to China, vital to China because China was also not only in a confrontation with U.S. imperialism at that time, the United States refused to acknowledge China at the United Nations. It gave China seat to the rump government of Chiang Kai-shek, even though it was in Taiwan and not in China. It was Chiang Kai-shek that was at the Security Council 
at the United Nations. And there was constant hostility. In the U.S. media, when we were kids, everybody learned to hate Red China, Red China, Red China. It wasn't the People's Republic of China. It was Red China. And Red China was sort of caricatured in a way that made it look like China was on the march. They're crazy. They're going to war, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have a situation where the Chinese obviously have to have this relationship with the Soviet Union. And they're getting lots of economic and scientific and technological help. They're getting help in terms of developing weapons, including nuclear weapons. But I want to go over a couple things before we wrap up this segment of our sort of review of China's foreign policy. One is that in 1953, Stalin dies. And Stalin is not only really the leader of the Soviet Union, which he clearly is, but he's the paramount figure in the world communist movement at that time. Until that time, all the communist parties that were in alliance with the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc, they basically supported the personality of Stalin, the writings of Stalin. They considered Stalin to be the center of the movement. The Soviet Union was the center of the world movement, but Stalin was at the center of the Soviet Union. And so when he dies, it's a very big event. He had been the leader of the Soviet Union for a long time. And in 1956, at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, in secret, the new government and the new party leadership in the Soviet Union says that Stalin was, in fact, guilty of many, many crimes, violations of socialist democracy, you name it, a Khrushchev secret speech. And there begins what's called de-Stalinization the process of destalinization it had profound international impact not simply on people inside the soviet union and politics inside the soviet union i mean you can just imagine the emotional and psychological impact you're told for two decades that stalin is the greatest leader since lenin and suddenly the same leaders who were telling you this are now telling you that stalin was guilty of many criminal acts it had a destabilizing impact on politics within the socialist movement. And also in the case of Hungary and Poland and Eastern Europe, where governments have become socialist really as a consequence of the post-World War II arrangement where the Soviet Red Army was in those countries. And as a consequence of, and this is a complex story of the confrontation between the United States and Britain on one side and the Soviet Union on the other. Anyway, the de-Stalinization of the Soviet party led to actually counter-revolutionary uprisings in some of these countries, in Poland and Hungary. It gave a great sort of wind in the cells for those who were anti-communist, not to mention the divisions that happened inside those communist parties. Inside this communist party of the United States, a huge part of its membership quit the party. This was right after 1956 and 1957. So Stalin's death and the de of the Soviet Communist Party at the 20th Congress, it's an international event. Now, eventually, when the Sino-Soviet split comes into full bloom, and we'll talk about that later, when we can see the impact of this division between the two great socialist countries, how the Chinese revisit the issue of Stalin and de-Stalinization becomes part of what then turns into an ideological political struggle. But at the time of the 20th Congress and right after the 20th Congress, 
the Chinese Communist Party was essentially sympathetic to Khrushchev, the leader of the de-Stalinization campaign. Again, this changes a couple of years later when the Soviets and the Chinese break apart, their political alliance breaks into its opposite. But during that time and right afterwards in 1957, the Chinese party issued a pamphlet, and I'm going to read to you from it. It says, since the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Soviet people, under the correct leadership of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, headed by Comrade Khrushchev, have achieved a series of great successes in building communism. And then it goes on, the fulfillment of this plan will lay down, the five-year plan, lay down a firm material and spiritual foundation for the transition to communism in the Soviet Union and enrich the treasury of Marxism-Leninism with valuable experience gained in building communism. So at first, the Chinese party welcomes the 20th Congress. And during that same time period, in 1957, a Chinese, I think it's Peking Review, it may be a pamphlet comes out, and the Chinese write, as we have already said, Stalin displayed a certain great nation chauvinist tendency in relation to brother parties and countries. The essence of such tendencies lies in being unmindful of the independent and equal status of the communist parties of various lands and that of socialist countries. Now, that's very moderated language, Ken, but clearly, at least at this stage, and sort of acknowledging what you're saying, that the Chinese communists have a perception that they've been treated rudely and badly, at least in some of their still very comradely dealings with the Soviet Communist Party. At first, they're optimistic about Khrushchev. And the reason I want to bring this out is that later within the communist and socialist movement, there is the assumption that the break between the Chinese Communist Party and the Soviet Communist Party came about as a consequence of the de-Stalinization at the 20th Congress, and that the Chinese were pro-Stalin and Khrushchev and the later leaders of the Soviet Union were anti-Stalin. But in fact, the relationship really only becomes brittly bad or very, very bad, not right after the 20th Congress and not right after de-Stalinization, but when Khrushchev goes and meets with Eisenhower and opens up through this symmetry between the U.S. and Soviet leaders, agreements that the Chinese view to be harmful to China's ability to stand up to imperialist pressure. And the Soviets are meeting with Eisenhower and trying to find a way to end Cold War tensions and come to agreements and begin arms deals and you know the elimination of nuclear tests and other parts of a anti-Cold War or a rapprochement or detente strategy, but China, which is still targeted by American imperialism in such a fierce way, has just fought a war in Korea, views these acts by the Khrushchev leadership to be a betrayal of a sister socialist country and another example of great nation chauvinism of the kind that they sort of moderately attribute to Stalin, but now it becomes a fierce part of the polemical ideological struggle between the two parties, which even then in 1959 is still a comradely struggle. It's not a struggle between states. They're saying, comrade, you should do this. They're not calling each other fascists or imperialists or you know that kind of language. But again, the political struggle breaks out into the open. 
And Khrushchev, in retaliation, withdraws all the economic advisors and technicians and scientists who have been indispensable for China's economic reconstruction in the 1950s. He retaliates against the Chinese Communist Party because they're upset that he's putting the relationship with American imperialism and the desire to end the Cold War first and foremost and before the comradely relationship with the Chinese. Anyway, that's how I view it. I wondered what your thoughts are. Well, I think that that's exactly right. I think that the rupture between the Soviets and China in 1959, it's the coming together of two zones of concern, two areas of concern that evolve in the course of the 1950s, that what you've just been talking about is one of those, which is the posture of the Soviet Union in terms of global affairs, in terms of the ultimate objective of world revolution. You know, the Chinese certainly were very understanding and very realistic. They conducted their own foreign policy in a way that recognized the existence of a multi-state system and that they had to operate within that. They needed to protect their national interests. They needed to survive as a, a sovereign state. And they understood that about the Soviet Union. There's no question about that. But, you know, as Khrushchev's international orientation became clear by 1958-1959. You know, it certainly appeared to the Chinese leadership that this was a pretty wholesale abandonment of any idea of global revolution and that the accommodation, the idea of peaceful coexistence with the capitalist system, with the imperialist world, was just going a little bit too far in that direction. It was not accepting the necessity of navigating within a pre-existing global system, but was really sort of embracing that, saying, well, this is just the way it is, and we're just going to have to live with this, which I think was not the long-term perspective of the Chinese leadership in terms of you know, the ultimate objectives of socialist revolution. But that global perspective also dovetails with these divisions that I was talking about earlier of perspective over China's course of development, that you know the Soviet model, the way that certainly Chairman Mao and others in the leadership perceived it was that the Soviet model had evolved in a way that was largely kind of top-down leadership, that the role of the party as the vanguard had been translated from the revolutionary struggle into one of a kind of top-down leadership management model that was inconsistent with what China was trying to do, which was, you know, having built a mass revolutionary movement that overthrew the nationalists and, you know, fought against Japanese imperialism and resisted American imperialism in Korea, that they wanted to build on that foundation. And just the divergence of those perspectives by the end of the 1950s, it shifted from being in philosophical terms from a non-antagonistic to an antagonistic contradiction. And it was the convergence of those two, the global geopolitical perspective of what came to be referred to as Soviet revisionism, and the divergence in developmental models between the Soviet sort of 
top-down management approach and the Chinese more mobilizational approach to development. Those two things coming together meant that these fraternal parties had to part ways. And as you say, this wasn't a violent outburst. It wasn't the complete rupture of relations. It starts as a fraternal debate, the exchange of polemical documents. But ultimately, those conflicts, those contradictions proved to be unreconcilable. And the Sino-Soviet split becomes the new or at least a new strategic reality going forward through the 1960s and into the 70s. Ken, I thought we would be able to march through 70 years of history, but we only made it through 10. (laughs) So we, we got through the 1950s, and I'm glad we did. I'm glad we spent enough time here to sort of set the stage for the 1960s, because in the 1960s, China, having had this first polemical, ideological, fraternal, and comradely struggle over perspectives on how to fight imperialism and how to build socialism... This struggle no longer is an ideological political struggle. It becomes a state-to-state dispute. It becomes fundamental to the politics, internal and external politics for China and for the Soviet Union throughout the 1960s. Of course, the 1960s, you have the U.S. war in Vietnam. Of course, that directly affected and drew in both China and the Soviet Union, put enormous pressure on both countries. Again, the 60s, this tumultuous decade is where we're going to go next. And we'll start by talking about how China moves sharply to the left in terms of its presentation as a political ideological force. And it's really under this shift to the left in the early 1960s that Maoism becomes an international political current. Because in the divide between the Soviet Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Parties, socialists, communists, Marxists, progressives all around the world in almost every country start to take sides. And so you see the development of competing kinds of socialism within the broad framework of groups that would characterize themselves as Marxists or Leninists or communists writ large. We'll talk about all of that in the next discussion. And of course, the overwhelming sort of dominating context for that debate, those discussions, those struggles, were the operations and plans and machinations of U.S. imperialism as the leader of world imperialism that targeted both China and the Soviet Union. But we'll pick the discussion up again in the 1960s. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.